Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. All right, welcome back to the show today. We are right in the middle of a series on God's sovereignty, but we do have two special guests in the studio. Unfortunately, Pastor Russ and Jonathan and Phil all conspired together to not be here on the same day, but we'll, we'll forgive them. Probably. Um, But we have Pastor Paul in the studio. He's one of the pastors that serves with me at The Well. Good morning, brother. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. And then Pastor Matt Marino, why don't you tell us, I introduced you a couple days ago, but uh, who who remembers that? So um. (laughs) I'll be lucky if I do. Um, So yeah, my day job is Ask Ligonier Chats. Uh, So I'm one of those guys who hit the bubble on the bottom right-hand part of the Ligonier.org site. You'll get somebody like me. And um, that's one. And then I'm also associate pastor uh, under Jonathan at uh, Dayspring and uh, also doing my PhD at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary as well. I'm going to Grand Rapids in a couple of weeks. That's cool. Are you guys going to be there at the same time? Are we? Yeah, it's probably pretty close. I'm doing two weeks. Yeah. I'm, in two weeks. Let's see here. I think I take off on the 21st. We may cross paths. In you guys, last you guys have to hook up while you're there. Yeah, yeah there you go. All right, so before I forget, uh, our upcoming Reformation Conference, are you going to be in town for that? I believe so. Yep. And you're definitely oh, yeah. Okay, so Be Thou My Vision, we have two wonderful world-class speakers, Dr. Robert Godfrey and Dr. Terry Johnson. The issue is on worship. You know, I mean, this is the most important thing. This is why we were created. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and join forever. Uh, this is going to be a wonderful conference. It is two months earlier this year, so it's September 17th and 18th. Go to ReformationBoise.com and you can find out all the details on registering. Okay, so we are right in the middle of a series on God's sovereignty. And we've talked about God's sovereignty in creation, God's sovereignty in providence, God's uh, sovereignty in salvation and reprobation and human will. So if you've missed any of those broadcasts, just subscribe to our podcast, The Gospel for Life. Make sure you put the word the in there and you can find those past broadcasts. Today, we're talking about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So here's our question. If God is sovereign, how is man responsible? So if God truly ordains everything that comes to pass, how can we say that man is really responsible for his day-to-day, moment-by-moment actions? Well, just like the questions about justice and love, I'm going to try to challenge their assumptions at the root. I'm going to say that you've got a philosophical presupposition here that does not come from the Bible. And that presupposition is that there's a, uh, instead of an inverse relationship here, there'd be a, there's, there's a causal relationship, a direct relationship between how much power I have to accomplish, in this case, the law of God, or what I'm created to do. There's a direct relationship between that, my ability 
and the moral worth of my actions or the obligation that God puts on me to begin with. And at first glance, it looks like this is a reasonable presupposition because we would all grant that uh, with more knowledge comes more responsibility. Humans have the capacity to do more good and more evil than a horse or a dog or whatever. So we would recognize that principle. The problem, though, is that's not... Let me make it easy for you. Do, Do you think that God, when he was writing his law was sitting up in heaven and looking down and thinking to himself, now let's see what these guys are capable of doing. Let's see what would affirm their sense of self-worth and uh, their abilities and so forth. No. So let me give you an Old Testament version and a New Testament version of this. This is why we're supposed to be what we are, and it's wrapped up in the image of God. Leviticus 11.44 says, Be holy, for I am holy. Matthew 5.48 says, Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see the same principle in James 2.10, that if you violate one point of the law, we violated the whole because, and then there's a he at the end of that, okay? So it's a, a person. So here's, long story short, the reason God made us, the reason God created the universe, Psalm 19, is because of what it says about God. So what makes something worth it, what makes moral worth, moral obligation, what makes something right is simply how accurate it is about God. Did we lie about God in our behavior and violating the sixth commandment the seventh commandment you name it or did we or did we tell the truth about god and glorify him okay so that's the first presupposition that needs to change you're assuming that moral responsibility is primarily a function of your ability Mm -hmm. and that just goes to the ancient pelagian heresy that if i ought then i can yeah yeah and and, uh, historically augustine was of course you know um, pelagius's uh chief antagonist and that doctrine of, of Pelagius was condemned as a heresy in the, in the early church mm-hmm. um, and held so for at least a thousand years. A thousand right? years. Uh, the, uh, the Synod of Orange in 527 reaffirmed the, the Council of Ephesus in 431 that initially you know, ruled on behalf of, of Augustine versus Pelagius, but semi-Pelagian even at the Synod of Orange uh, in 529 was also ruled as a heresy and all the way up it was never reversed until the Council of Trent. Which, and so, which is create, a which was a Roman Catholic council meant Rome. specifically yeah. to contradict the the doctrines of the Reformation. Yeah, and so we make a distinction between Romanism and and Catholic with a lowercase C. What you call Calvinism in the modern world was the Catholic historic biblical doctrine throughout the Church. Yeah. Uh, and and to call it Calvinism is just uh, is ridiculous. The, the awesome thing about how Paul argues, I remember when I first started uh, hearing your, your preaching, you would always uh, say, objection, in the middle of a, of a my message. Wife, my wife likes that, by the way. <laughs> but the truth is, is that uh, answering these objections is, is, is how Paul approaches almost all of his doctrine and almost all of his others, and specifically in Romans. And in chapter 9, after he starts, you know, unpacking God's sovereignty over election and reprobation, he says in chapter 9, verse 19, you will say to me then, in other words, here's your objection, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, he's asking the question, well, if God is sovereign, then how can I be responsible for my wrongdoing if nobody can resist God's will? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Paul gives two answers to the question. You want to walk through those? answers that he gives yeah one is where's the authority you know has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use Uh, so god has the authority to do so 
And I don't know if this is the second use you're coming to mind, but what if God, that's the beginning of, well, he has an end in this. It's not Mm -hmm. simply that he has the authority to do this, but God has a grand purpose in mind, which, by the way, is a infinitely grander purpose in mind than affirming our capacities and abilities. He's glorifying himself, in this case, in the creation of a world in which his justice and his wisdom and his power will be manifest in a way that would not be manifest if these beings like Pharaoh and the reprobate were not ordained into existence. Yeah. You know, I feel like the way that Paul answers uh, that question, I mean, maybe it's not totally correct to say he has two answers, but in the first clause, he, he's basically putting down the pride of men. Mm-hmm. Who do you think you are? Mm-hmm. I mean, when we're talking about God's sovereignty, it's an either or proposition. Either God is sovereign, he's king over all, he's in control over every event in the universe, or he's not. Those are our two options. If we say he's not sovereign, then at best we're, we're left with some sort of dualism, mm-hmm. um, some sort of universe in which other beings are in control, like, like Satan or, or ourselves, we have certain sovereignty over certain things. Well, in that case, God, by definition, is not God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, at that point, we're talking about the system of Old Testament tribal deities where you have Baal or Moloch or any Astra where they are gods of, of this local, you know, people, but there's no God over all. Yeah. That's not, that's not the, the, the God that's portrayed in the scriptures. That's right. Or a God who's sovereign over, say, the seas and another God sovereign over fire or, you know. Mm-hmm. That is, that is Greek, that's Greek mythology, right? right. Yeah, yeah. And this is instructive for our answer to the problem of evil as well. There's a biblical way to answer that. And I always tell the the people, the the biblical answer is already set forth for you at the end of Job and in Romans 9. And in both places, God is basically saying, where were you? Oh, look, Job's here to lecture us. Uh, He was there at the beginning of the world, and that's pretty much the tone that it comes in. And it's the same thing going on here in Romans 9. Romans 9 is is a theological answer and a philosophical answer. Philosophically, it's telling us... You're not in the position to make this argument. Yeah. You have no reference point other than a finite reference point. Yeah. But theologically, he is saying, sit down and shut up. Yeah. He, he is saying, there is a God and you are not him. And the effects, I'm glad you brought up Job, because the effects that God telling Job about his sovereignty had on Job was profound. He starts in chapter 38, I believe. He ends in, in chapter 42. After God speaks, declaring who he is, Job just says, I spoke in ignorance, essentially. Now my ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Mm-hmm. Now I repent. And this, so his whole disposition changed. Yeah. He went from uh, this miserable creature to this ecstatic worshiper, and he had not yet received his kids back, his mm-hmm. property mm-hmm. back, his riches back. God's glory mm-hmm. was enough. Yeah. That view of who God is. Yeah. And, and so, as we're talking about God's sovereignty, this isn't some, some theoretical thing. This has profound, practical effects on our lives every day. You want to be lifted out of the, the dunghill or lifted out of the gutter. Reflect on God's sovereignty. Amen. Okay, well, let's go to the second answer that Paul gives then. He first says, who are you, O man? And then he says, what if? You want to walk us through that? Yeah. So, it's not a... It sounds like a hypothetical, as if Paul's giving us a proposal. But it's not. It's a, it's a way of saying and walking, walking people through to think about it. Uh, but 
What, and this is verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now, there's a couple of things here. First, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Suppose, now this is an exercise in, here's what happens when you try to get away from Calvinism. When you try to get away from Calvinism, you start pulling on that ball of yarn where all doctrine is connected to all other doctrine. And you're going to wind up with some other gospel, some other worldview. In this case, one of the things I want to ask people is, do you believe God's omniscient? Oh, sure, yes, I believe God's omniscient. So did God know before he created Adam or Lucifer or anybody else after Adam? Did God know which people he was creating would go to heaven and who would go to hell? Oh, yeah, because... If he's not, if he didn't know that, then he's not omniscient. But if he did, then Arminianism does not solve the problem that it's created to solve. Right. You're still stuck with every single vessel of wrath prepared for destruction being a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. Why did God, if he put his love, which has to apply one-to-one -to, -one to every single creature, according to your view, why then did God not withhold creation from those individuals rather than creating them knowing that they would be a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction? Answer, because they were a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction, just like Romans 9 says. There's another thing on here very quickly. Paul anticipates the objection. Romans 9, that's just about nations. That's just about the Jews and how he elected the Jews and not how people get saved. Wrong, Paul was hot on your trail. Verse 24 even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentile. Amen. <laughs> amen, amen. Well, you've been listening to Gospel for Life. We're going to continue this important series on God's sovereignty. If you haven't read A.W. Pink's book, The Sovereignty of God, I would highly commend it to you, and we'll see you next time. 